Have you ever wondered how a word can change your life? Maybe stop you in your tracks. Maybe make you imagine that life can be different. Words have that power. We're going to be talking with poet Malcolm Geit about the relationship between words and imagination. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today the poet and priest, Malcolm Geit, all the way from England. Malcolm, welcome. I'm very pleased to be here. Wonderful. Well, uh, Malcolm is um, most known to me as a poet now, and we've had a, a wonderful visit in the last few days as he's been visiting here uh, with the people at Image, mm. uh, who uh, are... Um, uh, an organization that produces a journal called the Image Journal mm. uh, and is uh, con consistently uh, eager to make the connection between faith and the arts. Absolutely. Uh, I think their the tag is art, faith and mystery. Uh, it's just yeah. Uh, yeah, very deep engagement with both the faith community and the community that, that produces the arts in contemporary so, society. But when you use the word mystery, we are drawn into both the world of the arts and the world of faith. Indeed. And yeah. yet not everyone makes the connection between the two, right? In fact, yeah. early on, you didn't either, but you yeah. you were drawn by the arts into faith. Can that's, you say a little bit about that's that? That's right. Well, I, I mean, I, I, as it happens, I was brought up in a Christian household, but maybe like many teenagers, you know, I, I thought I'd grown up out of that. I, I, I swallowed the lie that somehow material science had disproved it and that it solved and explained every mystery and yeah. uh, this was uh, in the days when you used to read sort of B.F. Skinner's behaviorism and yes, all of that yes. and I um, but then uh, I I had an experience of real epiphany through the arts through poetry actually through reading the poetry of Keats and um, I just realized that I couldn't reduce everything to a formula Right. that there's one thing to know the facts, but it's another thing to know what they mean. Yes. And I found in the experience of great poetry, but of other arts too, that there was what I've subsequently le learned to, to, to use a theological word, pleroma or fullness or overflowing. Yes. There was something flowing through these. Mm -hmm. I understood you know, art and poetry as gift. I understood the language of the muse, right. but I really needed to find who the giver was, you know, to try and go upstream through ah. the arts to their source. And I realized great science also tries to go upstream through all the formula to a source, that there is a common source. There's ima uh, imaginative in, leaps that are there made are, in, yeah, in, in science. Right? Yeah, there's a new, there's some very good work. There's a great British philosopher uh, called Mary Midgley, who's written a book called Science and Poetry, you know, which yeah. is just precisely about those imaginative leaps. Um, when I came to faith, I actually came to realize that the whole um, beautiful sort of story of a God who, 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 create, who is love, who is an exchange of love in persons, who creates, and within his creation then bodies forth the meaning of who he is in a right. person in Jesus Christ. Yeah. I saw that as providing an underpinning really for all the, the work we did. I mean, um, I also have been involved in quite a lot of artistic collaboration and working between, say, poetry and painting or poetry and music. Right. And I come to see that that uh, you know we're made. I believe very firmly that we're made in the image of God, mm -hmm. and the image of the God in whose image we're made is both 
creative and collaborative. Ah, okay. Because the father, you know, gives glory to the son and the son gives glory to the father and the spirit. Yeah. So uh, I came eventually to, to write a cycle of sonnets going through the whole liturgical right, year. Right, right. Uh, and um, when I came to the, the sonnet for, uh, for Trinity Sunday, uh -huh. uh, our setting, our liturgical setting for the Trinity was not some abstract thing. Right. It was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And yes. it was all about God making us and forming us. Yes. And um, I began to realize that his creativity uh -huh. is a source for and an invitation to us. So I don't know if this helps, but this is this poem, Trinity Sunday. Good. And I know some, some artists have found this resonant. So Trinity Sunday. In the beginning, not in time or space, but in the quick before both space and time, in life, in love, in coherent grace, in three in one, in one in three, in rhyme, in music, in the whole creation story, in his own image, his imagination, the triune poet makes us for his glory yeah. and makes us each the other's inspiration. He calls us out of darkness, chaos, chance, to improvise a music of our own, to sing the chord that calls us to the dance, three notes resounding from a single tone, to sing the end in whom we all begin, our God, beyond, beside us, and within. Mm. And I think that allusion, in a sense, in beyond, beside, and within to God the Father and God the Son and mm -hmm. God the Spirit. When you come to that mystery, prose isn't good enough, reason alone isn't good enough, no demonstration is good enough. To approach that mystery, you know, like Jesus says, you've got to love the God with all your heart and all your soul. And one of the things you need to bring to the table is art and imagination, because they can help us to say many things at the same time. Right. And a beautiful shape whether it's in words or paint or sculpture or in the shape of the liturgy, a beautiful shape holds the mystery far better than a kind of lot of... So this is an interesting shopping. notion about holding the mystery. So there, there, there are those who want to explain mysteries mm -hmm. as if they're solving a riddle, mm. you know. Uh, they're they're uh, settling what a, the puzzle yeah. is. And, 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 and in doing so, there's a, a way of sort of draining all yeah, the yeah. mystery oh, out absolutely. of life. Right? Oh, absolutely. There's okay. a great Scottish poet, um, Edwin Muir, a mystical uh, yeah. poet, wrote a poem about the incarnate one, and he, uh, which is a great affirmation of Jesus as incarnate, the poem. But it starts with, I mean, I'm sorry to say it starts with an, his experience of bad church as a kid. Yes, yes. And you know what he says? He says, the word made flesh is here, made words again. <laughs> he says, the word made word words. in flourish and arrogant crook. And then he says this, here, the mystery, talking about bad explanations, he says, here, the mystery is impaled and bent into an ideological argument, Ugh. you know. But right, he goes on right. to say there's better gospel in man's natural tongue, you know. Right. And so what he's, what he's looking for, he says there's a certain kind of bad theology which when God comes to us fully and richly 
in, as a person and in and through the lives of other people. It's almost like we're scared, like God's got too close. Yes. So we, we abstract him again. We turn him into a bunch of propositions right, and put him right. back up into some intellectual realm. Right. And he's always getting past that and coming back to us. Nice. And one of the ways I think in our age that he does that is through the arts. Uh-huh. Because I think our age has so emphasized analysis and reason and breaking things down into yes. their constituent parts that people are in some sense rebelling against that. They need something with soul. Yes. But f- a lot of people, instead of seeing the heart and soul of that as in, in the gift of the revelation of the gospel, are finding it through the arts instead. Right. Now, instead of throwing up our hands in horror and saying, oh, no, but you should be in church, we should be saying, how are the arts mediating to you even a little bit of the mystery? Mm-hmm. Maybe we can see all the arts as a bit like the hem of Christ's garment, you know? Ah. The woman touched the hem and something happened, you know, some power, she right. was healed. Now, she just wanted to sneak right off into the crowd, didn't she? Yes. But Jesus stopped, he said, somebody touched me. And they said, oh, you know, and he called her. This woman who thought she'd just get a quick fix and disappear, you know, because she was worried about her issue of blood and she didn't think, he calls her around. And do you remember he calls her daughter of Jerusalem? Yeah, she yeah. totally belongs. Yes. So I sometimes see all of our engagement with the art as, as, like, as like spreading wide the beautiful hem of Christ's God ah, lovely. and letting his power flow through it. But we then say, well, if, if that happens, if I'm engaged with other poets or musicians and they say, where's this coming from? They really ask me that question. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to impose it on them. Mm. But if they say, I say, well, do you know, my faith tells me that creativity has a source in a creator. Mm. And we can take the conversation from there. Well, so it has a source that is beyond us, that is given to us, in a sense. And so it's sort of drawing upon that which is coming to us more than our making it. This reminds me of uh, Agnes' line. Uh, poetry makes nothing mm, happen, happen. Yeah, yeah. which of course one might take, should take ironically because Auden's a poet, yeah. uh, it, 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 if, you, if you break it down, yeah. it makes no thing happen per se yeah. uh, in that there's something mysterious beyond this yeah. thingness of the yeah, world, Absolutely, but it makes nothing happen. Exactly. That is the word creates exactly and often what the poetry does is is precisely to create in the pit slow i mean you could think of poetry as language slowed down a little ah um so that you get to savor it and at the end of a poem there is necessarily silence yes but it's a different kind of silence than the silence at the beginning of the poem that's the same with music as Ah. well that it enriches something and then something happens in that Now, that something that happens at the end of the poem is not entirely in the gift of the poet. Yes. It's something that the reader also brings. You know, there's a wonderful poem by Seamus Heaney called The Rain Stick, where he he talks Mm. about how when you upend the rain stick, you hear this downpour sluice thrush, but the beautiful sounds of of the music of water. And yet he knows it's only grit and dry seeds. And implicitly in this poem, he says, I'm kind of upending the rain, the rain stick of the poem into you. I mean, you are the rain stick. The words flow through you, and each reader's imagination, their own creativity, brings out right. the, the music. Right. And there's a movement between the two. So I think the poet 
often experiences the poem as a kind of gift and receives it and does their best to be faithful to what they're being given. Well, and then the reader, and then the reader receives it. Receives it. So you, you mentioned Seamus Heaney, and so his his wonderful poem, uh, Digging. Oh, it's right, glorious, yeah. Which is, is glorious when he, he, he talks about watching his father and his mm. grandfather before them dig uh, mm. with a, a, a spade in yeah. the ground and how they were farmers and the like, and that... You know, he would never be that, but... But, but yeah, he says, I've no spade to follow men like them. Go Between on. my finger and my thumb, the squat, squat pen rests. I'll, I'll dig, dig with, with it. it. Yeah. Exactly. And I'll when you go back it. through the poem, you realize that right. all those things he said about different kinds of digging, yes, about the nicking and slicing and going down and the yes. cool field, and the cutting through roots and going down for the good stuff. Right. You suddenly realize all of that is also about writing. Exactly. It's not just I'll dig, it's every kind of digging, you know. But then it, when you read something like that, uh, you're not supposed to only, I think, hear uh, Seamus's uh, experience with his father and his yeah. coming to vocation. Yeah. You're also supposed to say, how did I come to mine? Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so here's, I'm reading this and realizing my father and grandfather before me mm. were ship pilots in New York Harbor. Yeah. Right. And they thought that this was what I should do as well. And yeah. in every possible way, you know, uh, I should have been a captain on the sea. And so it, it, it forced me to ask, what's the pen in my hand? And so then I, I think about my work now and I think I'm piloting a people Absolutely. of God. That, yeah. that this is a journey. Uh, that we're yeah. taking at sea yeah. and we have a direction to take and so this is my work yeah. and it's not that different. And that's a beautiful long image of the, the church herself as a ship and stepping yes. on board a ship. I, I always love the way it, right at the beginning of the gospel, you know, Jesus gets into somebody's boat. You know, ah, right. And they right. push out a little way so he can preach. And then, you know, there's a great moment when he says to Peter, launch out into the deep. Yes, you right. Know, and that's right. that real. No, I think that's actually true. In there's a great sermon by John Donne. Um, John Donne was a wonderful poet in the uh -huh. um, late 16th, early 17th right. century, who was then called by God to be a preacher and brought the poetry into the preaching. But he's got a sermon in which he says, he has this lovely phrase, he says, he says, when God calls somebody to be a secretary of the Holy Ghost, he never overwrites who they are and what they've been before. So he gives two examples. He says, when he called David from the sheepfolds and from looking after the sheep to be king of Israel, he called him from one kind of shepherding to another. There you go. And when David took up the pen, as it were, yes. uh, under the guidance of the Spirit, he filled his psalms with images of shepherding. And he said, I am the good shepherd. That, that thing had a promise. And then he, rather more daringly, John Donne, because everybody knew, yeah. everybody listening to him in St. Paul's Cathedral, right. knew that John Donne was a famous love poet. And right, right, right. Loads exactly. of love poems yes. to lots of people. The flea. So, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so John casually, by this time fully ordained, he says, you know, Think about Solomon, he says, you know. Solomon was famous for his many love affairs and his many wives and concubine, but God called him to write a piece of scripture. God called him to write the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And he didn't censor him, he didn't He said, bring me all that passion, and now let's turn it to the story of how God is our lover, how he comes into our souls. And so, so, so Solomon takes his first vocation and it becomes fulfilled in his final vocation. Let's put a 
comma there for a moment, and we're going to come back, and I want to pick up from that uh, into more about your sense of vocation and your sense of pricking in imagination by what you do. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. This program is made possible by the contributions of friends of the program, and we are delighted that they continue to support it so generously so that we don't have to ask for additional support every episode. I'm sure you're glad about that too. If you'd like to know where else you can tune in to find Good God, whether in a video format or audio, or even to get a transcript of the program, go to www.goodgodproject.com. That's our website. And it's the best place to go to receive an archive of all the previous episodes and to get a new one each week if you'd like. Thanks again for your support. We're back with Malcolm Geit. And Malcolm, we were just talking about your sense of vocation as a poet. Mm -hmm. And what you hope poetry does mm. through you uh, as a gift to the world. And uh, I, I think many people are not uh, in the habit of reading poetry. Yeah. Uh, we, we have all sorts of other media mm. and the like, and poetry seems to demand a little more of us, right? Yeah, though, of course, it gives yeah. more to. Actually, do you know, I had a very interesting, we were talking about Seamus Heaney earlier. Yes. I had a very interesting conversation with Shane, Seamus Heaney on this very subject when I interviewed him when he won the Wilfred Owen Prize. And he was talking about how poems didn't necessarily, people didn't necessarily remember a whole poem. Uh -huh. So he's saying, like, how does poetry work? And he said a poem is not a poem when it's just in print. It's not even a poem when it's a bunch of thoughts in the reader. It only gets to begin to be a poem when it's breathed into being and read out loud. Uh -huh. But he said, I know that poems will not be memorized in the way they were in the past. But he hopes that he said when the poem is really a most a poem is not when you're reading the poem or thinking you're doing poetry. It's when you're out there in the middle of life, something is happening. You can't quite deal with it. Things aren't in focus. And suddenly a phrase from a poem, mm. Mm -hmm. like you quoted the poetry makes yes. comes into your mind and offers you a clarification. Yes, yes. And it gives you and then this is Feeney's own phrase, he said, he hoped that his poetry would offer people, and this is how he put it, phrases that feed the soul. Nice. Phrases Just that phrases feed the that soul. Just phrases that feed the soul. Wow. So that was, and I feel the same way, I mean, about yes. my own poetry, that I'm trying to listen for a certain kind of music. Yes. I'm trying to restore a sense of beauty in the way language is used. But I'm trying to phrase things in a way that will be memorable mm -hmm. and helpful. Yes. And yes. lucid in the sense that they will elucidate things for people. And for that to happen, there has to be a way for us to be interrupted in our normal Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. right. And, and to be open to those interruptions. You have yeah. a poem, I think. Yeah, so I have, so this is, I mean, it's kind of, um, partly a kind of a lighthearted thing, but sometimes you start with a jest and it, you know. So one time I was um, supposed to be giving a talk on poetry, which is illustrated with a handout with some of my poems, and I didn't have the handouts done. So I thought, uh, you know, there'll be a photocopying room, which there was just by the lecture hall. And I thought it'd be a real simple photocopier, just put it in and press the button. Right. But it turned out to be one of these really complicated ones with lots of trays and I couldn't, but there's nobody there to help me, so I pressed a button and did my best, and the whole thing, after a little while, jammed up. <laughs> and I had to just take what poetry I could, and all these flashing lights, you know, open door, B, jam, you know, the bell was going, so I went off. So I, 
<laughs> After the lecture, I was sneaking back, you know, past the door, and as I feared, you know, this woman came out, tall, striking woman, with one of my poems crumpled up in her hand. <laughs> she pointed a finger at me and she said, your poetry is jamming my machine. Oh. And I thought, that's a great line. Let's, let's you know, use that's it. That's a good line. Let's use that. So afterwards, we'd sorted it out, and she actually started reading my poem. So I wrote this poem for her. It's snappily titled, On Being Told My Poetry is Found in a Broken Photocopy. <laughs> but I realized it was opening up a lot of other stuff as well. So it goes like this. It's a villanelle, so you get these repeated lines, a bit like a photocopy. So here we go. My poetry is jamming your machine. It broke the photocopy, I'm to blame, with pictures copied from a world unseen. My poem is in the works. I'm on the scene, we free my verse, and I confess my shame, my poetry is jamming your machine. Though you berate me with what might have been, you stop to read the poem just the same. And pictures copied from a world unseen subvert the icons on your mental screen and open windows with a whispered name. My poetry is jamming your machine, for chosen words can change the things they mean and set the once familiar world aflame with pictures copied from a world unseen. The mental props give way on which you lean. The world you see will never be the same. My poetry is jamming your machine <laughs> with pictures copied from a world unseen. <laughs> Oh, so my goodness. So it was a bit of fun, really. How but, fun. Know, yeah. Yes, but also um, beautiful in the sense that what you're saying is there is, a, there is a kind of angularity of how God intervenes in oh, our God, lives. Oh, God, yeah. God does. Uh, right. I mean, a lot of the parables of Jesus are disruptive of what people think is the normal case. Right, right. But it's not random disruption. Right. I, I want to say that, you know, there's a, there's a way in some forms of modern art that assumes that as long as you're offensive and disruptive, it's art. <laughs> now, I don't think that's the case. Right. I think there is a time when you need to write something which people might find quite shocking, but right. that's only because you've got something to say. So my, I jam the machine, fine. Mm -hmm. But photocopy, of course, the photos part of photocopy, it goes back to light. the Greek phos, light. Yes. And I wanted to suggest that poetry brings a light right. to us that wouldn't have shone otherwise. Very good. And when I say, uh, set the once familiar world aflame with pictures copied from a world unseen, I was thinking of that moment in Exodus when Moses sees the burning bush. Ah. You know, he's walked past that bush every day with his father-in-law's right. sheep, didn't think there was anything there. Suddenly, he turns aside. And although the bush is still as bushy as ever it was, something new is there. There's a new light shining from it. And he takes off his shoes from off his feet. Oh, this is, this is then, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, right? Yeah, there. exactly. Yes. Every yes. common bush, you know, Earth's yes. crammed with heaven, she says. Yes. And every common bush ablaze, they're seen around. Yeah, we, we're, exactly. we're singing off the same inch. Yes, yeah. we are. She's exactly. great. She's great. She certainly is. So yeah. um, then you realize the poem might at least take you turn turn aside. It might make you look. Yes. Now, I would not give poetry the office, which I believe is only God speaking through the Spirit and Scripture, that having made us turn aside, having opened us up, then the Lord, the Spirit, has to speak. Mm -hmm. And he often does it through the Scriptures. And the voice has to say, take off thy shoes from off thy feet. Yes, yes. And then we're, you know. Yes. But if poetry, like I said in the earlier session, is the hem of the garment, or if it can be the light from the familiar bush suddenly transfiguring the vision, yeah. that's a very good starting place. Yes. That's what got Moses' attention. Yes. Yes. Well, 
And, and this is the incarnation we, we, we talk about. Yeah. So C.S. Lewis has this way of talking about how as human beings, we come to know one another, the mysterious nature mm -hmm. of our personalities mm -hmm. only through the body, mm. right? So there, there has, on this side of the grave, yeah. we, we, we are bodily creatures in search of that spirit that is yeah, yeah. the unique mystery of the, yeah, of the yeah. person. And it takes work, whether through a word that mm. comes to the light, to the meaning of, of yeah. it. And uh, so it doesn't happen apart from it. We're not this sort of disembodied. Yeah, absolutely. We're not trying to yeah. leave the body. No, right? no, 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 not right. at all. And, um, and then he has this beautiful image of the resurrection life in which, uh, in which actually what's happening is uh, even now the saints are, uh, they, they know one another spiritually and they're moving back toward bodily existence yeah. in the other way, which I think is delightful yeah, to think yeah, no, about. That, right? that's, I mean, Lewis I mean, is endlessly um, fruitful and helpful here. Actually, you know, talking about the poetry that just suddenly makes you aware of a, it opens a window or makes, of course, Lewis famously describes how that happened for him, you know, when he was a young atheist. And yes. it wasn't even an explicitly Christian book, although it was written by a great Christian imagination, yes. George MacDonald. George MacDonald, right. When he's reading that book, Fantastes on the Train. Yes. And he says it's almost as though the light from the book wasn't simply, it was beginning to transfigure everything. Yes. The railway carriage, the woods outside. And he has that beautiful phrase. He says he felt like he'd crossed a border. And then he says something like, I suppose, in a way, my imagination was baptized. Ah. And um, I would feel the same. Yeah. I came eventually to a, to a fuller and, and glad, you know, affirmation of, of Christianity in, in its, you know, in its, in its fullness and in, in what's disclosed in, 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 in the scripture and in the creeds. But what started was with, it was really through poetry. My, my imagination was baptized before I was, and the yes. rest of me just took a little longer to catch up. You know? Well, you needed a little water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know. it was in many ways provided by a chance encounter, wasn't it? Uh, in that you bumped into an interesting person. Oh, in yeah, that was kind of I love this story. Yeah. So Yeah, no, no, that was, well, I was thinking, so I, I, I was a, sort of, I had been a, an atheist, and then reading Keats made me into an agnostic. I mean, <laughs> um, not On the way. Into, so I was a kind of agnostic when I came up to Cambridge to study medieval literature. But I became really interested in medieval literature. So somebody said, you should read St. Augustine as a background. Right. And I read the confessions and I was thinking, whoa, you know, <laughs> yeah. no longer could I believe that Christianity was this little thing that we'd grown out of because, mm -hmm. you know, Augustine's mind is a bit bigger than mine. Yes. Now, then I began to study classical philosophy and I read Plato and, mm -hmm. and I was compelled, you know, by the Christian story, but I was also interested in the classical world. And one of the things I couldn't get I could see how Plato was saying we're all in the Shadowlands and we need to get out of the world of time and into the world of eternity. But the more I looked at the Christian claim, it seemed to be saying that the, the one who is already in that bliss comes down to be with us and yes. affirms the body. And I just felt like, how do you hold that together? And I saw Augustine. And I was thinking about this so hard, I physically stopped in the street. Like I was, I was a bit of a way, way, way from straying. <laughs> we can't in, imagine. In those days, <laughs> my right. hair was really long. Oh, you know? uh, yeah. and I, so I was just thinking so hard, I physically stopped and somebody bumped into me behind, right? From yeah. me, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking. And instead of saying, I realized it was a, you know, a, a young academic, you know, one uh. of the fellows, well, clearly not a student. Yeah. So I said, I'm sorry, I was thinking, and instead of saying, well, get out of my way or, you know, go and think someplace else or whatever, this person looked straight in the eye and said, what were you thinking about? 
Wow. And I said, well, actually, I was thinking about Plato and Christ. You know, I was just thinking about, and I, you know, I said uh, what I've just said to you. And yes. He said, um, have you ever, I said, he said, well, have you looked at this in Augustine? I said, well, I'm wrestling with Augustine. He said, have you read the Greek fathers? I think Chrysostom or maybe Origen. Yes. And I thought, whoa, you know, <laughs> who's yes. this? So I said, well, well I, I don't really know those people. How do I read them? And he said, well, maybe you'd like to talk about this. And gave me a little card and uh, it said, uh, Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams. <laughs> yeah, and it was, Rowan and he was, Williams. He was teaching. Who had become I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, but he yes. was, he was you know, a young teacher in, 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 right. in, in Cambridge, and I had a conversation with him, which was extremely helpful. Yes. And then, you know, that was that. Then eventually, a little while after that, the penny dropped. Yes. And I did become a Christian, yes. and I felt I need to do something about this. So I went to my college chaplain for confirmation classes, right. and we did those for a while. And then he said, there's somebody I know I think you should really talk to and the other confirmation candidates as well. And in fact, he's going to preach at the confirmation. He's a guy called Rowan Williams and you can go and see him. So we all went back to him again. Oh my goodness. And he preached at, uh, this was, we're talking back in February, 1980, I was confirmed, you know, yeah, he preached yeah. at my confirmation. Right. And somewhere in the course of that, I realized that he was a poet. I mean, he's a really seriously good poet. Right, he's a Welsh poet. He's a Welsh bard is yeah, what he really is. He really is. is. And, yes. um, so, so we occasionally corresponded about poetry as well, and, and you know we've remained friends. But, but he was, and I'm not the only person who could tell you, you know, way off record and off camera that Rowan Williams has quietly stepped into somebody's life and just given mm -hmm. them the key seeds and words. Yes. You know, the, the Welsh poet Gwyneth Lewis is another person yeah. whom I know. You wow. know, so he's got a bit of a. a a gift for being in the right place at the right time with the right word, I have to say. Well, Malcolm, you have uh, the right words for many of us mm. as we listen to your poetry, and we're happy that you've given us this right time uh, no, to do it. You. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for being on Good God. Um, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.